But at the end of the day, if you seem like you're going to be frustrating to work with, that buyer is going to say no, even if your product is really tasty. Welcome to the Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. Hello and welcome to episode number 138, Inside the Brains of the Buyer. And as a special token of appreciation to the FSP audience, Allie, today's guest, will offer a free review of four listeners' sell sheets commenting on what is working with their current sheet, what needs improvement, or is missing altogether. Beyond those four lucky food producers, she will also offer a free PDF workbook on creating great sell sheets to anyone. Man, it's tough to say on their sell sheets, but uh, yeah, anyway. You can find all this at alleyball.com slash F-S-P, A-L-L-I-B-A-L-L dot com slash F-S-P. Her background as a grocery buyer and head of grocery at Buy Right Market in San Francisco, a store that's been around since the 1940s, has propelled her into a consulting career. We'll talk about that during the show, but... She has successfully opened several retail locations. At Byright, she opened the Divisadero location in San Francisco as store manager and had $7 million in their first year of operation. As a consultant, she has worked with a variety of clients, ranging from nonprofits to small businesses to the James Beard-nominated and award-winning chefs as they venture into retail. In addition, she consults on the food producer side, assisting them with business planning, product development and launch, and building wholesale accounts. She also works with restaurants to train and coach their management team, ensuring their staff are motivated, fulfilled, and most importantly, staying around. And as I mentioned, she does this with retail stores as well. So if you have a store you want to open or we'll say remodel and rejuvenate, she also can help on that. She also teaches classes on creating successful food businesses at the Food Craft Institute in Oakland and La Cocina in San Francisco. She also volunteers as an advisor for the Culinary Institute of America's Food Business School and Kitchen Table Advisors, as well as the founding pantry chair for the Good Food Awards. Listen, at the end of the day, she has versatility on the food producer side and retail buying and HR side. She is a leader in the San Francisco food scene. And her skill set is unique. And listeners, as I've mentioned many times before, creating a skill set that cannot be easily replicated when it comes to job automation, AI, and just standing out in the ever-crowded marketplace. She's also very personable and warm-hearted, emits good energy. Ali Ball, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. So I, I guess first announcement, you are our mystery guest at the Food Brand Summit. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. It's gonna be it's gonna be a great two days. We're equally excited. And uh, what are you gonna talk about? Great question. I am going to talk about the steps that you need to take 
to be prepared to meet with a retail buyer. So all of those things to think through before you actually get on the phone and pitch your product to to a wholesale buyer. Um, from my background in, in buying, I know exactly what makes a buyer excited about a new product or a new brand. And I know exactly what turns them off and makes them run in the other direction. So I'm going to talk about that. Uh, basically, the four steps that you can take to prep for, for wholesale. I love it. And it's very timely because that will be at the end of day one of the Food Brand Summit. And day two, food brands will be able to pitch to buyers. So it will be kind of a, a crash course in making sure that their pitches are in line and they can modify as is before they, they pitch on day two. Exactly. I was thinking a lot about that. And not that I want all the people pitching on day two to go and scramble and rewrite their pitches. However, if at the end of my portion of the webinar, they realize, you know, they never talked about buybacks, and they have a really perishable product, maybe that's something that they would add in quickly to their pitch, and it would make or break a new relationship with a buyer. And when it comes to buybacks, Ali, is that something that maybe food producers make a mistake on not clarifying their buyback policy and then it can create friction or, or loss of profit with the- Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the number one thing that you, you know, as with all, all things in the food industry, you have to have a strategy and, and a plan before you roll out something like a buyback procedure. So oftentimes I see people, small producers who are really eager to do buybacks, which is great. But then a year later, they're still doing buybacks and that retail account is, is not properly managing their inventory. And that producer is just losing money month over month because they haven't negotiated the terms of the buybacks with their wholesale account. So food is a very unforgiving business and there's many examples, not just buybacks of simple things like, Oh, if I would have just done that one thing three months ago, put the UPC, change the package, yeah. you know, and it's, yeah. if you get the more like errors and problems you can prevent proactively, the better. Well, exactly. And this is Matt, that's exactly why I started my consulting business because I realized that there were all of these these secrets behind the scenes in specialty food that there were that there were these things that that made buyers say yes or no to bringing new products onto the shelf that weren't shared with the producers. And so I had this theory that if if I could assist the producers and make them have stronger stronger products that they were bringing to the market, stronger um, policies in place for things like buybacks, that they would be more competent and well-rounded when they pitch to buyers. And then in turn, buyers would be receiving new products, new brands that were better prepared for these wholesale accounts. And it would just be a win-win, right? Like at the end of the day, the buyer wants to sell more product and the producer wants to sell more product. So working together, we can just make, you know, have it have it be stronger on both sides. Right on. And I'm sure everyone listening is like, what are those, uh, you know, what are those things? <laughs> We're going to get into that later. The, uh, you know, what makes specialty buyers say yes um, and what makes them run the yeah. direction. But listeners, this episode yeah. can be found at foodstartupspodcast.com slash Alley, A-L-L-I. So, so Ali, let's let's move on. It's it's really interesting. So, one of our recent guests, Dan from Runa, the Guayosa Tea, his co-founder walked into Buyright a few years ago, and you said no. Can you tell us why you said no to Runa a few years ago? 
Yeah, so so it was wild. Um, they approached me back when Byright had one store, 18th Street, in the Mission District. And this was, I think it was 2010. Um, it was, you know, maybe a year after they had been in business. I think 2009, Tyler and Dan graduated, right, and um, moved to South America, spent spent a good six months or so like scoping around and then came back stateside and started like pitching their product. So when they approached me, they had only their bagged tea. Uh, so dried, dried tea, like a traditional tea bag. And their whole theory was that if people could drink this tea several times a day, they would receive all these, these benefits of, of Runa, of the Runa brand. While they had this new product, you know, they were um, adding this product to the market that did not really exist in the U.S. market. It didn't seem like a good fit for our store at that time. The tea category was relatively small at Byright, and it was really, it was really more high-end specialty tea that came in, you know, imported from from Europe and from China, from Japan, that had you know really lovely high-end packaging. Most of it was sold in tins and was really giftable. Price point high, you know, between ten and twenty bucks. And Runa just didn't seem like the right fit for our shelves at that time. We we didn't really have, you know, Byrate is a specialty store. So while there certainly are people who shop there every day or several times a week. It's also a, a destination for many people where they come in and they buy gifts and unique items um, for you know special dinner parties or holidays and things like that. And so Runa just seemed like the incorrect fit because it wasn't what our shoppers were looking for in the tea category at that time. So it was a kind of an unknown thing while you said, right, still, I mean, they've yep. done a great yep. job penetrating the market, but there's still a lot of people may even know what running is, but they don't even know it's Guayusa tea. And uh, yeah. it, it didn't fit. It wasn't a gift that someone would buy. Um, maybe sometimes you don't want to buy a gift where you have no idea what you're giving the other person. Um, yeah, yeah. And back then, you know, I remember the packaging. It was, you know, the first packaging that they did, and it was pretty, um, it was pretty wacky. Just, I just remember, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it wasn't quite so uh, professional as it is now. And it just, you know, it wasn't something that you would give as a gift. It was more of a, a functional tea that you would buy for yourself and have with your breakfast every day. And that really wasn't how our shoppers were, were um, you know, interacting with the tea category back in 2010. So I said no. Yeah, I said no. Um, and they were bummed. You know, they... They tried hard and, you know, they talked about all the, of course, they did the right things, right? Like they talked about the benefits of the tea. They talked about how they were emerging into the market and Byright could be one of the first people to carry this brand that was sure to be uh, a big thing in the U.S. And I was probably a grouchy buyer at that time. And I just, I said no. And I really like held my ground. And sure enough, we, we never brought them in. And so it's, I think it's, it's really funny because it's a good lesson in a, in a few things. Like one, obviously Tyler kept going, you know, Tyler and Dan did not take that buy rate rejection as they didn't take it to heart. And they said, you know, you're right. You know, you may not be the right fit for us right now. We'll circle back when we've got our ready to drink beverages. We'll see if we're a, a better fit down the line. Um, and they realized that there was still a place for their tea in the market. It just wasn't at 
a specialty store in San Francisco at that time. And then it's also a great lesson for me too on the buying side of things, just because I think something is not the right fit for the store or um, that I don't really see potential in a brand. I'm, I'm not always right. You know, they have gone on to be a great success and uh, it's a, it's a good lesson for me to learn that I got to keep my eyes and ears open beyond what I just expect. Yeah. Yeah. And Ali, I think that, you know, a couple of things as well. They obviously, Dan and Tyler, they may not have known the, the buyer persona of your stores because you're pitching so many stores, right? And, yeah. and also I, I think um, they're just a, a lesson for persistence. And it also made me think, you know, you don't forget when you get rejected. You don't have to take it personally, even though sometimes you may, but you, you never forget when you get rejected by, by different buyers. And, and I'm sure a lot of the rejections and feedback they got helped tr- you know, transform Runa into the brand they are today. Yeah, exactly. So, Ellie, really cool with, with BuyRight, but what were you doing before BuyRight? I was working for a tech startup here in San Francisco that did management training and team building. Okay. And so we'll get into your consulting a little bit, but you do, uh, that serves you today because you do kind of HR training, correct? Yeah, exactly. And and I I feel strongly that that helped me get the job at Byrate in the first place, because while they were looking for a grocery buyer position, they also needed someone who could manage the grocery staff. And so I had a lot of that management experience. And while I didn't have the grocery experience, I could... I picked it up pretty quickly. Um, and the, you know, the management coaching and the management training was potentially more important than the, the food side of things at that point. And it, it feels really cool, doesn't it? When you do something earlier in your career and usually unintentionally it, it comes into play. They're like, Oh, I'm so glad I had that job because now it's, it's, uh, you're taking advantage of it. Oh, totally. Totally. Cool. Cool. Okay. So you're doing that by right. I think, the way I have it noted here, you know, opening up the Divisadera location was a transformative year for you. Tell us about that year. Yeah, that year was wild. It was, it was so much fun. I was working like a crazy lady. We all were, you know, opening, opening a retail store is very, very intense. There are so many moving parts to it. So I, I was, at the same time, still grocery buying at 18th Street, trying to transition out of that role, but still like day in and day out at 18th Street working and trying to plan a grocery department for Divisadero, which is about three miles away from, from the 18th Street location. So I was figuring out the schematic and the store layout. I was hiring staff. I was doing interviews. I was making shelf talkers. I was literally building metro racks. It was it was such a wild year. We did about six months of really intense lead up to the opening. We opened and then that's when that's when the work just begins, right? Like you think day one you're smooth sailing, but that's when we learned what we started to learn what was working and what was not working. And that's when it really became a wild ride. Wow. So it it, it was wild before, but then it got more wild when you opened it. And what were some of the kind of aha moments you had in the first week of opening that that uh, you had to adjust? Well, the first thing I realized is that I needed more staff. We were immediately busier than we had projected. The opening of Byright Deviz was delayed for about 
two years. Um, so there was a lot of anticipation with opening that, that location. Once we finally did, the people came. The, the neighborhood was really enthusiastic about it. And we very quickly realized that we were, we were going to be busier than we thought. So my first, the first thing I did in that, that first week was order more product and hire more staff. Okay. So you hire more staff. Now, when you met with food producers that wanted to come into the store or, or manage that process, were there, did you take on a lot of like new startup brands or did you tend to go towards some of the more proven brands in the space? Well, we were really fortunate to have all the sales history from Byrate 18th Street to, to play off of. So we already knew what our top sellers were in each category. So we essentially took the probably like 60% of products that already sold really well at 18th Street and replicated them for Divisadero. And then from there, we tried to round out the categories. So it was a balance. Certainly when you're trying to have a unique product assortment, you need to find new brands, find up and coming brands. So that was really important to me that we had had producers that weren't on the shelf all over the place already. So I spent a lot of time finding, yeah, finding those new products and finding those young, younger food businesses to bring to the shelf. But in that and provides us own, yeah, How did you yeah, find go ahead. Um, that's a great question. Fortunately, at Byright, a lot of people would come to us. I would have, I don't know, probably two dozen people every week dropping off their samples for, for us to try, which I could talk about later, you know, why that's a bad idea uh, to just drop your samples blindly with buyers. But well, let's, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. I think that's a really, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is relevant point for a lot of people. This is. Um, one of the things I talk about all the time with my clients is how to get your samples in front of a buyer. And the number one thing I can tell you is to not, don't do a cold call and drop off your samples without making a connection with that buyer first. Because usually what happens is you walk into the store, you ask that front of house person, that cashier, if you can meet with a grocery buyer, they say no, and they take your samples in the so we're assuming that your samples look beautiful that they look really tasty that cashier is probably going to eat them themselves they're like oh yeah i'm going <laughs> to a dinner party tonight i'm going to take these cookies with me or oh like i don't think we need another caramel in our confections department and they look really good i'm just going to eat them on my lunch break later so oftentimes the samples never get into the hands of the buyer in the first place and then if they do realize that most buyers sample products on a, a schedule. So you, it might be once a month. It might be once every two months. So a lot of times those samples go back to the grocery desk and get put in a big box where they sit for a month or two before they're sampled. So in that month or two, your products can get crumpled and crushed with other products. Your sell sheet gets goes missing from the actual samples. You know, basically by the time the buyer samples them, it's not in the condition that you wanted. It's not the best representation of your product. So it's really important to make sure that you get those samples in the actual, in the hands of the actual buyer who's going to taste them in that moment. So let me Let's run a hypothetical example. So, Ellie, if yeah. you're the, the cashier and I say, and you're going to tell me that 
I don't have access to the buyer yeah. right now. So I'll say, hey, Allie, we got this new granola bar. Um, uh, can I speak to your buyer? No, the buyer is on vacation. Well, you know what? Uh, where? I- I'm going to go find him now. But uh, <laughs> I would say something like, Allie, I realize that I- I'd like to drop it off personally. When would be a better time that the store buyer would be here? I'm a cashier and I really don't know the buyer's schedule. Okay, I'm stumped. Allie, how do I, how do I, uh, how do I? <laughs> so from, from there, so I would advise before you roll up to that store in person, make contact with that buyer on the phone or over email and set a time that you can go in and see them. And so, and you do that by, you know, this, it's obvious. You call the store and you ask for the buyer. And sure, you might have to talk to that cashier in the first place, but you can you can get to the buyer through through that cashier or that admin person who picked up. And so you talk to the buyer very, very briefly on the phone, tell them why your product would be a really great fit for their store. And then recognizing that they are really busy, you say, I'd like five minutes of your time to make sure my samples get in the right hands. How about next Monday? How about next Tuesday? Whenever it works for the buyer experience. A lot of times the buyers are like, okay, yeah, I should be like free, like after two, they don't give you exact time. Yeah. 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 And then you show up and then they don't want to meet with you anyways. Right. (laughs) So it's really, you have to develop a relationship with the buyer. And if, if, as long as they commit, as long as they make the, the admission that, okay, I'll see you for like three minutes. That's huge because then they have to live up. Yeah, Um, exactly. And I do think it's important when you say, as the producer, when you say, I just want to make sure the samples get in the right hands, then you're, you're showing that you have insider knowledge that you know that the samples often don't get to them. And then the buyer's like, aha, that person knows what they're doing in the food industry. They get what happens behind the scenes. Um, they're not, you know, they're not a dummy. I'm going to make some time for them. I love it. That's the magic sentence right there. And uh, yeah. So okay. So what else? I mean, so first off, you got to get the samples into the buyer, build some type of personal yep. contact with yep. them. But let's go into that question. What else makes specialty buyers say yes to carrying your product line? Well, it's really important to realize why buyers make product decisions in the first place. And it is because they want to increase sales in a particular category. So say you make a really fantastic coconut milk caramel and you want to bring it into a specialty store. The buyer is only going to bring in your caramel if it will increase sales in the confection category overall. If it just takes away from the sales of a goat's milk caramel, it may not be worth it for that buyer to bring in your product in the first place. So knowing that, that's the first step, knowing why they would ever bring in your product in the first place. You have to outperform what's already on their shelf. Does that make sense? That's a huge insight right there because it's if it's like a – if, if it, let's say it's chocolate, right? The chocolate, yeah. you have another chocolate bar that takes away from uh, another chocolate bar they have, that's not going to affect the bottom line. I've never. No, exactly. 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 And so buyers success is based on whether or not they can increase sales in their particular categories, in their target categories. And you also mentioned the sell sheet. So when you drop off the samples, you have like a, it's like a one pager sell sheet that uh, you can print out that has all the relevant info of the brand, the price, the case size, et cetera, et cetera. 
Exactly. A cell sheet is a double-sided, full-color, usually heavier weight piece of paper that represents you and your brand when you're not there. So you would, exactly, Matt, you leave that with a buyer and it has all of the information that the buyer needs in order to make a decision on your product line without you, without you being there. And so... Ideally, it also gives them all of the information they need to place that first order. Oftentimes, I see, see sell sheets that don't have contact information on it, which is the you know the number one faux pas. I get psyched about a product line, and then I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to get in, in touch with them. I'm a busy buyer. I'm not going to go and Google them and figure out how to get in touch. Um, so making sure you have your contact information on there is really valuable. But then also things like, the UPC codes. So as a buyer, I can enter that product information into my point of sale before the, my first delivery shows up. UPC codes. I love it. And Ali, question for you. I, I know other people do this as well. We've talked about this before with other food producers. Do you appreciate when people are like, hey, Ali, and they put this line like, I know you're busy or at the end of the, uh, so I'll, be, <laughs> I'll make this quick or at the end of the email saying, thank you so much for your time. Do you appreciate when people acknowledge that? Absolutely. You, I think you mentioned earlier, Matt, that it's all about relationships. So the more you can be a, a, you know, an easygoing, warm, respectful partner in this wholesale relationship, the more you will gain the trust of the buyer. So even little things like that, thank you so much for your time, or I know you're really busy, I just want three minutes of your time or whatever it is to acknowledge that, that they are busy um, and that you do appreciate the time they gave you, the more respect you'll get in turn from, from that buyer. I love it. I love it. Okay. So let's move on to the second part. What uh, You already mentioned not having UPC codes, not having contact information. Mm -hmm. What else sends mm -hmm. a buyer running in the other direction? It's a great question. The biggest thing is the personality of the the owner of whoever is representing that brand to them for the first time. If you seem like a high maintenance brand, the buyer is going to run in the other direction. So high maintenance being um, overly pushy and really frustratingly aggressive in getting your product on their shelf. If you are calling them all the time. If you somehow got their phone number and you are texting them, I've had this happen. Texting, texting? no, te I mean, you can text once you have your product in their store and you've established that relationship. I used to text people reorders all the time, uh, which was great for me on the floor as a busy buyer. But like, no, if you don't know that, that buyer, don't text them, right? It's just disrespectful. If you- Interesting. Yeah. I, I would never think of that. Yeah, it, it's all about relationships. So if you see, seem like you are going to be a high maintenance person to deal with, then it's not worth the buyer's time to bring you in. So, if you seem, sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, so Ali, I mean, this is really interesting to me because I guess texting, okay, we're in this new weird technology space. I don't know if you saw Simon Sinek's thing on millennials and how like the communication uh, everyone's going to their phone. So we're still kind yeah. of developing etiquette for this, right? So a lot of yeah. people are just not aware of this. So you're saying no texting until the relationship is built as a yes. kind of heuristic. But so you mentioned this, but what about follow-up, right? Because on one hand, you can't be frustratingly aggressive, 
but you do have to follow up. So how do you find the right balance there? Yeah, it's that's a great question. And I often say that you have to, as a vendor, you have to apply constant, gentle pressure to the buyer to get your product in. It takes so much follow-up to get your product on the shelf. So I fully acknowledge that you have to be a squeaky wheel in order to get your product on that wholesale shelf. But at the same time, I like to say at some point that squeaky wheel just gets replaced, gets pulled off and a different wheel comes in and the relationship is done. So it's about finding that balance. You know, maybe you email once every two weeks. Maybe you leave a voicemail on Monday and then you follow up with a very short bullet pointed email on Thursday, but you're not calling them every single day. You're not showing up in person twice a week until they finally come down and meet with you on the floor. Um, until the buyer comes down. Yeah. I've had people do that. And it's just, it's wild, right? Like, you know, people think that if they're the loudest and the most consistent, um, it's going to make the buyer say yes. But at the end of the day, if you seem like you're going to be frustrating to work with, that buyer is going to say no, even if your product is really tasty and really, you know, new and exciting in the category. I love this advice for for kind of just modifying our tactics. I'm just thinking about my own sales efforts. And so <laughs> here's here's something. Tell me uh, how you feel about this. I want yeah. your honest opinion here. How do you feel yeah. about the email phone combo. So what I do is I'll call and usually I don't answer. So I'll leave a voice message like, Hey, it's Matt. Yep. Just want to check in about the golden berries. Don't worry, Craig, I'll send all this in an email. And I send it right after like resuming what I left in the voicemail so they can do either or how do you feel about yeah, that combo? That is perfect. That's perfect. And it's great because then as a buyer, I can listen to the voicemail and delete it. And then I go to my email and I've got, I imagine Matt, you're attaching your sell sheet. You're attaching your pricing. Uh, maybe you're attaching a really great write-up where they talked about your product in the New York Times, uh, whatever it is. So I get to, to see pictures of the product. I get really excited about your packaging. Um, that's a great way to follow up with a buyer. Interesting. And one thing, and so I'm more of a, I have a, a tech background, you could say. And Ali, I, I always try to get re- like an email conversation going before I send attachments because a lot of times you have too many attachments. It's more likely to go into the spam folder. That is true. But at the same time, I will argue that since the buyer is so busy, they at times like to avoid the back and forth. And I, yeah, I want to have it all in one email. And I want to say like, I want to be able to make a decision on your brand from that first interaction. And that's why, you know, traditionally in marketing, you know, we build up the product, we build up the service, we build up whatever it is, we get the person to buy in on it. And then we reveal the price later on once they're already super enthusiastic about whatever you're selling. In buying, I argue exactly the opposite. You've got to tell them the price in that very first interaction so they can see if it even fits into their their product mix. I like it. Okay. So, so really get all that information, that one email. So they have enough right there. They can reference it. They search their email. They'll, they'll see everything right there. They don't have to send a follow-up email that you have to answer. Yep. Amazing stuff. Okay. Ali, I want to move on to some of your consulting work with, with food producers and retail, right? You do both sides. Now, um, you've been doing this for three years. Yeah. So I'm curious, how have you evolved in terms of the way you interact with, and I'm sure you've gotten better as you, as you've moved forward, right? So what, um, 
How have you evolved as a, uh, we'll call it, as a consultant? It's a great question. So you and I talked a little bit about this offline, and I have definitely evolved the way I do my backend service offerings. I've, I've made things much more, I put them into packages. So essentially, if you want to work with me, I run you through either a one month or three month or six month program, depending on where you are in your food business. I was finding that people really wanted to do one hour one-offs, right? And so I would I would say yes, because I was really eager to work with these up and coming food businesses. And then we would book an hour, sit down, and they would want me to answer all of their questions and solve all of their business problems in one hour. And it was really frustrating for, for both of us, right? Because Obviously, I could not solve all of their business pl- business problems in one hour, which frustrated me. And they were frustrated, too, because I wasn't giving them the complete results that they wanted. So after probably took me about 18 months to realize that I really had to offer these these longer term packages uh, to, to really make sure that we were going through the fundamentals of their business before I started consulting on the on the bigger strategy. So that was a big change in the beginning. I'm changing from hours based to more to more packages. Um, so that was one. And then the second thing I realized is that I really needed to start selling things that producers thought they wanted, right? Like at the beginning, I was really focused on selling financial consulting and my I really felt that that producers had to get their financials down before they could grow their business, right? Because the last thing you want is to get into Northern California Whole Foods, you know, do your first huge production run and realize you're not making any money on your product. So that was that's where I was coming from. I was like, we have to get the, the financials down. But no one really, it, people really didn't want to hear that. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to start by selling them what they really think they need, which is how to pitch to a buyer. And once we run through that, they'll realize, and now I have to get my financials done. So then we could backtrack and get to what I really, you know, really wanted to sell them in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, very interesting. The, I appreciate you walking yeah. through the, <laughs> the psychology there. And so here's another question for you, consulting with food producers. What are the first questions you ask them when they reach out to you? Yeah. One of the first questions I ask them is whether or not they've done a business plan. And usually the answer is no. And that's where I start with people. Oftentimes the business planning process is really daunting. They think they need to know in-depth financial projections and really figure out like where they're going with their business. But I do it a much in a much simpler approach. I call it the one-page business plan. It's actually more like five pages, but we run through really, really um, straightforward questions. You know, why is your product better than what else is on the market? Who are you going to sell it to? Who's your target audience? Where are you going to sell it? Where do you want to be in three years? Um, things like that. So I always start there because it is it gives me a better sense of who they are as a business owner and where they want to go in the future with their product line. I love that. Yeah, because it's such an old school thing and there's a lot of opacity with what needs to be in there. And you always think of mm-hmm. like the, you know, those stock photos you see on websites for like just kind of generic consulting companies and they have the stock photo yeah. of the meeting and there's like one yeah, person exactly. smiling and like the yes. other, the, you know, they always like, 
you know, mixed the races and genders with the ladies looking over yes. the man's shoulder and saying, oh, <laughs> that's a great report. And it has like a, it has like a bar graph or something. And you think that exactly. like, I don't know if I'm going to hit 7 million of sales in year seven. It like, so that's cool that you demystify the, the business plan. Right. And then we use that as the foundation for our work together. So if you say my product is going to be sold in Costco's across the country, that takes us down a very different route than if you say, I'm only going to sell direct to consumer online, right? So that really dictates where we go with the rest of our time together. Makes so much sense. And so I'm going to finish off actually with that. We'll say trends moving forward, but you mentioned e-commerce versus brick and mortar. Yeah. How do you see that playing out in the future? And what do you recommend to brands when they have to make that decision of either or, or, or both? It's a great question. And as someone who has a retail background from brick and mortar, it, I feel I feel really mixed about e-commerce. And I think that while there's so many benefits of it, it convenience being the number one, one seller there, um, I think eventually we as a society are going to miss that face-to-face human interaction in on the sales floor, right? Like you can't try a really delicious peach before you buy it on the internet. You can't have a sample of that habanero jam before you say yes to putting it in your basket, right? So I think food is all about taste and connection. And while it's great to be able to order it online when you when you need that convenience more than ever, anything else, losing that that face-to-face interaction is really a shame. So I think that I think we'll swing and and go back to the brick and mortar with grocery sales eventually. I love that prediction and it's and it seems that it's it's a lost art now. I mentioned Simon Sinek's I'll link to his video about just you go out to a restaurant or you're waiting for a meeting and instead of talking to the person next to you, you're looking at your phone and yeah. and uh, yeah, so I think people are going to start to realize and people are already aware of it, but just the anxiety of having your phone on all the time and uh, being quote unquote connected and that there's, there's a lot of trends going the other way against we'll say um, disconnecting and restoring some of the things because we didn't have the technology, right? Not because we're better or worse human beings that we had to do. Uh, in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the one of the things to, to realize is that technology can certainly help us in the food space, right? Like it helps us connect to more buyers, like in the Food Brand Summit in, in May. Um, it can help us promote our product and really educate people on, on the benefits of our product. It can connect us with other distributors and co-packers and all of these people who can help support your brand. But at the end of the day, in the food industry, it's about how your product tastes. We still are selling a tangible product. So at, at some point, you know, you you have to physically be in that same space with your your end user. Uh, so I don't think that that's going to go away at any at any point. Yeah. And especially for the newer products, we have a new category. Um, like I think with our golden berries, people don't know what they are or a new type of jam, whatever it is. It's a lot more difficult to sell online. If Maybe if you sell limes or coconut oil, it can be a little <laughs> right. bit different. But yeah, the 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 point you make is, is well taken. So Ellie, I want to just summarize things here. I mean, we talked about your versatility or I talked about your versatility in the intro, but 
I love how you approach things from the the opposite perspective. So to me, it's really interesting to get a consultant that's been on the other side mm -hmm. because a lot of times we see buyers almost as like, ooh, it's like the buyers, you know, um, the business player. Yeah. And um, I really value your genuine take on the industry and a lot of the things you're saying may seem counterintuitive to people just because uh, you have some answers that a lot of us don't. And we always assume one thing when it's actually the other. So you've de delivered so much value to our audience today. If listeners want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch? Sure. They can find me on my website at alleyball.com or they can email me directly. I love responding to emails. It's just Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, at alleyball.com. It's true. I'm always sending alley emails. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, on a serious note, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we're going to have to see what listeners come back with feedback. But after the summit, maybe you can come back uh, this summer. That'd be great. I'd love, I'd love to do that. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.